If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 20, continuing our study of John's gospel, John chapter 20. Before we dive in, I just wanted to update you on two things. One, pray for Clint and his family <clears throat> today and tomorrow. Uh, Clint's aunt passed away on Thursday, um, so let's just surround that family uh, with prayer uh, as they mourn the loss of a loved one. And one more thing, uh, Howard and I were able to attend Twin Lakes Fellowship um, early uh, last week, so Monday and Tuesday. We came back Wednesday. It was a great time of refreshment and fellowship and good teaching. Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that to you and thank you for letting us do uh, things like that. So John chapter 20 we're picking up in verse 10, and we'll read down through verse 18. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, would you honor it this morning? Would your spirit shape and mold us more and more into the image of Christ as we behold you, our risen King? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's pretty hard to imagine <clears throat> all the broken hearts that have existed in our world since the fall. Paul, man in the garden, rebelled against the Lord. And since that time, we have lived alienated lives, separated from God by sin and separated also from one another because of sin. It would be hard to imagine the pain of actually being cast out of the garden as we heard earlier in our Old Testament reading, man and woman blaming each other. Blaming God for the fall, but the net result was the same. Expelled, kicked out of God's temple 
garden. And there an angel was set with a flaming sword. The way back in is death. And the resurrection, we began to see this. We find ourselves again in a garden. Last week we looked at how monumental the empty tomb really was. It changes absolutely everything. It changes time itself. New creation is breaking in. The first day of the week we we celebrate today because of what happened then. We looked at Mary coming in the darkness and not finding Jesus in the tomb. The astounding reality that women were the first to bear witness. Then she runs to Peter and John and we see them come to the tomb and we see the, the seeds of faith beginning to grow. John saw and believed. Dawn's light was breaking into the darkness just like light initially broke into the darkness on the first day of creation. Just as the sun was coming up in the sky, so the good news of resurrection was rising in the hearts of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive. His body has been raised. The curse is being rolled back. The tomb has not been robbed, but the body of Jesus is simply gone. He was there, and now he's not there anymore. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see the impact of the resurrection on the people of God. We'll see weeping turned into joy. We'll see fear being erased in the peace of Christ Given, we'll see doubt washed away by the touch of a hand. We'll see the resurrection of Christ is powerful to change everyone and everything that it touches. All along, John has been trying to to teach us, to tell us what Christ has come to do. He's bringing light into the darkness of our world. Before we dive in, there's some questions that we could ask ourselves. How has the resurrection changed you? We're going to be seeing how the resurrection changes all these people. And again, we're being taught a a spiritual lesson that the resurrection is designed by God to change us, to shape us. That once we encounter it by faith, we're not the same. How has the resurrection changed your life? That's the common thread that's going to track through the rest of John's gospel is everyone touched by the resurrected Christ is changed. They're not the same. Their lives are different because Christ is risen. So I think it's only right to ask you and to ask me, how am I different because of the resurrection? Has it changed me? The reality of resurrection is dawning, but it's not yet full. Up till this point in our text, no one has actually laid eyes on the risen Savior. We'll see our text in four parts, stooping to see, 
seeing dimly, sorrow washed away, sowing seeds of good news, stooping, seeing sorrow and sowing. We read in verse 10 that Peter and John had returned home. We know the story. Mary went early to check things out, saw that Jesus wasn't there, ran to get them. They ran, they raced to the tomb. We had all of that last week. But now we have Mary back at the tomb. They've gone home. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. She had returned. She had come back. She's standing there in utter grief, utter loss. Why is she back at the tomb? Why does John keep emphasizing her, Mary Magdalene? Why her? We know that other women came from other gospel accounts, but he is zeroing in and and even slowing the, the text down enough to show us her utter grief. She is utterly undone. Last week we talked some about her, but not in much detail. I believe that John knows his readers likely knew who this Mary was. And we're told this in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We read, soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. This is the Mary at the tomb. A formerly demon-possessed woman. Why does John keep pointing her out? Her love for Jesus is astounding. She, listen, she loved much because she had been forgiven much. He's focusing in on Mary Magdalene because he's saying she, formerly she wouldn't be an insider with Jesus. Look at what God has done in her life. She loved much because she had been forgiven much. A social outcast in society, but brought in close by the Lord Jesus, a close friend of Jesus. Why is she weeping? Like, it's obvious she lost a friend. I think it's bigger than that. I think we're meant to see that she is alienated from God. Her tears are similar to the feel of Adam and Eve walking away. Utter failures. Separated. Sent away from the garden because of sin. What had once been a perfect relationship is now fractured. She had been close to the Lord, changed by him from a crazed, demon-possessed woman to a kind and generous disciple. Every single one of us here, to one degree or another, have experienced the deep pain and separation of loss. The loss of a loved one. And even if that sting hasn't 
hit all of us. Maybe you're too young to ever really experience that. We still feel the curse. We we continue to feel the results of living life in a fallen world. We have all felt isolation. Many of us have experienced what it's like to be on the outside, looking at those on the inside and longing to be there. No longer in the in-group, no longer on the inside with family and friends that we had formerly. Again, think of Adam and Eve as they're walking away from the garden. The sting of loss. Think of them looking back over their shoulder, longing to go back. Longing to walk with God again in the cool of the day. Longing for that perfect fellowship, but all they see is, a, is an angel there with a flaming sword. Our first parents knew this feeling, and so does Mary standing outside the tomb Weeping for the Lord Jesus Christ, and so do we. Verse 11 emphasizes for us that she was all alone. The others had gone, but Mary had come back. Even though she is shattered by the loss of Jesus, she's still looking for him. What a tremendous lesson! She is sad. She is utterly heartbroken. She is weeping, but she is still in her tears looking for the Lord Jesus. What a lesson. How about you? Afflicted, tired, confused, maybe in deep sorrow, maybe even this morning. Here's the lesson that we get from Mary coming back, looking for him. Keep knocking. Keep asking. Keep looking. Stoop down and look to see that the tomb is empty. In your pain, you are being invited to seek after Christ. Verse 12. She had stooped down and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain and one at the head, one at the feet. What a vision. John not only tells us that there were two angels there, but he he tells us what they're wearing and he tells us weirdly how they're sitting. What What an odd description, right? Why are you spending time telling us this detail? If you remember all the sermons that we've had leading up to this, especially through the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, all the images that we discussed along the way that John has given us, one of the main images that we've seen is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat above it. And over the mercy seat are what? Angels. Cherubim with 
their wings spread over the top of the ark. It seems that in response to the grief of Mary, God wants her to have a living image of the ark where the true sacrifice was laid. Jesus, the true sacrifice, was here. Angels on each side, just like the ark. Listen to what Gerhardus Voss says on the angels. Placed like the cherubim on the mercy seat. They covered between themselves the spot where the Lord had reposed and flooded it with celestial glory. He's giving her an image of the true ark. Here are the angels, no longer warring, here to announce life. No longer warring angels with flaming swords, ready to do violence against the sin of God's people now in Christ. This tomb is flooded with heavenly glory. Mary is not a high priest. She wouldn't be allowed anywhere near the Holy of Holies in the second temple. Nowhere close. But here, because of Christ, because of the resurrection, this former demon-possessed woman is given a vision of the living Holy of Holies. The angels speak first. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. It's really remarkable that she can speak back. I think it says something to the tremendous grief that she is in, that she is not stunned. She's not fully aware. I think things are happening for her in slow motion. She just quips right back to them. I don't know where Jesus is. And I also see something of this. Angels are great, but they are no substitute for the Lord himself. She is there for him. So Mary comes weeping and stoops to see. And next we'll see that Mary begins to see. But dimly at first in 14 and 15. Again, she seems undaunted by this scene of glory that she is Seeing here, verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She turned around. You see what John is telling us in saying that? She, she had come again to look for Jesus in the tomb, but his, his point is, you have to turn around, you have to, you have to turn away from the tomb to see Jesus because it's empty. He's not there. She turns around, and there's Jesus outside the tomb. Isn't that good? Here's Jesus. Notice, notice this. She's there looking for Jesus, and Jesus is coming to her. Jesus is actually the one finding Mary. Mary is in the valley of the shadow of death and Jesus is with her there. Isaiah 42, 3, a really famous verse, a bruised 
reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Mary, like many of us in this room, is a bruised reed. She is a faintly burning wick. It's about to go out. And here is our Lord with her. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He is near to you, child of God. This is Christ in his resurrection. This is what he is coming to do. Jesus comes to Mary in her grief. She does not recognize him. She doesn't recognize him at first. And this is really interesting. This is a theme that after the resurrection, many of the disciples don't recognize the Lord at first. Luke tells us that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they fail at first to recognize the Lord. Later in John, we're going to read that the disciples are out fishing and Jesus is on the beach. They see him, but they don't recognize him until he calls to them. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? The same question that the angels ask. And then he says this. Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. On the one hand, her observation makes logical sense. We've been told that the tomb is in a garden. There should be a gardener there. Who else would be at a garden early at dawn on the first day of the week? And John, however, I think we're Again, being reminded and invited into the reality of new creation. Here is the true gardener. The creator from the beginning. The passion narrative of Christ begins in a garden where Jesus is betrayed. Pilate tells all listening, behold the man, the archetype of man himself, the first man, the true and better Adam, Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week, new creation, a gardener in the garden. Who was the gardener of Genesis? Who planted that garden? God himself is a gardener. He puts Adam in his garden to tend it. But God himself is the gardener. She looks and she thinks, man, he's a gardener. Jesus, we'll see, will breathe life into his disciples just as God breathed life into the nostrils of the first man in the garden over and over and over again. John is telling us here he is. Here he is. What is the response to Mary's grieving heart? The second Adam has come. What wrecked you before is now coming undone. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection of Christ. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also 
in Christ all are made alive. Notice the question that Jesus poses. Why are you weeping and who are you after? The answer to why are you weeping for Mary is very clear. I guess just like from the angels now coming from Jesus, how about us? Why are you weeping? You're like, I'm not weeping this morning. And Clint was right in his prayer. Like some of us are here utterly rejoicing. Things are great. But others are gathered here this morning with broken hearts. Heavy burdens, maybe not for yourself, but those you love. That has to accompany this next question, though. From the Lord Jesus Christ, these two get jammed together. Why are you weeping? Gets jammed together with, who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking to to give you relief in your sorrow? Are you seeking the one who has life in his name? Are you seeking the one who claimed to be the bread of life? Are you seeking the, the living water? Mary sees this gardener, but her vision is still dim. She, she wants his body back. So first we saw Mary stooping to see, then she begins to see, but dimly. So the question is, again, what is going to turn her sorrow into joy? So I'm going to go back to this issue of why, why all these misunderstandings when people encounter the risen Jesus? Why don't people recognize him? We could conjecture that his resurrected body looks a bit different than his physical body before. That's one plausible explanation. I wouldn't disagree that there's something to that. However, I think there's more going on with all of these appearances and all of these occasions in Luke and here in John. In Luke, the disciples don't recognize him right away. It's, it's not until he had told them all that the Old Testament had to say regarding him. They are hearing the word and then they recognize him. Later in John 21, the disciples will see Jesus again. He's over on the beach and they don't know who he is. Then he calls out, children, have you caught any fish? How's the fishing going, guys? And it's not until he speaks that they recognize, oh, it's Jesus. And that's when Peter bails out of the boat. What is it going to take for Mary to recognize him? She doesn't at first. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It took the word of Christ. It's no longer just the image of him. It's no longer the vision of him that is opening people's eyes. It's the word that's opening their eyes. This 
one word flips everything for Mary. It's her name. Everything clicks into place. Just consider for a moment new creation is broken into the world through the resurrection. All that has been needed to accomplish salvation, redemption for the people of God is finished. The world tilts on its axis around the death and resurrection of Christ. And here, all of that is first experienced by Mary. Mary. This is teaching a a huge lesson, I think, to, to all believers this morning. Coming to Christ is is not like going to the DMV. Have you ever been to the DMV? Such a personal experience. As soon as you come in, they know your name. They're with you. They're no, it's a terrible experience, right? You come, you, you get a number, right? Quinn just got reduced to number forty-four. Number 44, sit here until we call your number. Then when we call your number, you better have all your documents correct, and that is what makes up your full identity, and then we'll do for you. And I'm not, look, I'm not ripping it. We have to have it. I'm not ripping the people who work there. If you work at the DMV, that's great. It's not a personal experience. They want your number, and they want your documents. They want to stamp you and get you out the door. That is not what Jesus is like Look at the explosive beauty of what is going on. He says her name. One commentator puts it like this. His people are not just numbers in a book. They are individual people with individual needs. And he knows them through and through. Child of God, he knows you through and through. He knows your name. Not an impersonal savior. Our Lord doesn't demand that Mary take a number and have a seat. He comes to her and calls her name out loud. This, again, is the good shepherd of John 10. Listen again to John 10, 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He calls his sheep by name. He knows every single one of them. Calvin says this, thus in Mary we have a lively image of our calling. You hear that? In Mary we have a lively image, a coming to life image of our own calling. He goes on, for the only way in which we are admitted to the true knowledge of Christ is by that voice which he has especially, which he especially calls the sheep which the Father has given to him. End quote. Calvin is saying this, Our calling, yours and mine, is exactly the same as hers. He comes and says your name. If you know Christ today, it is because he has called you. If you have come to Christ, if your eyes, which were formerly dim and you couldn't recognize him, if that dimness is gone and you see him in the full glory of his beauty and what he has done to save you, it is because he has called you. Mary's calling is just a type of what God had had to do to save any one of you or me. This is exactly how he does it. Just as Mary could not withstand this calling of Jesus, neither can you or I. 
If he calls you, you will come. If you have heard this call by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can never undo that. Let's read this exchange of 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus calls, Mary responds with this honorific teacher. It's a familiar term. She's expressing that she is familiar with the Lord. It's actually an affectionate term from her. He is the master and she is the student and she knows it. But then she clearly rushes the Lord because the next thing that she is doing is clinging to him. She is embracing him in some way, either grabbing onto his body or some conjecture that she is clinging to his feet. Now that she sees and he is risen, she does not want to let him go. And then Jesus gives this this odd statement, and there's a lot of debate about what's going on here. Don't cling to me. I think the best way to view it is this. Jesus is saying something like, now is not the time for you to cling to my body. As though you would hold me here forever. I must ascend. I must go back to the Father. And you have a mission to do. You have to tell others. Jesus is viewing his resurrection in time. And the time for the ascension into glory is coming. He is not going to be bound to the earth in his resurrected body. And he's telling Mary that's the wrong instinct. You can't keep me here. I think Jesus is telling Mary something very similar to what he's already told the disciples back in John 16. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I think he's saying something very similar to her. Look, do not hold me here. It's to your advantage that I go away. Mary, it's to your advantage to let me go. There's more work for the disciples to do. Jesus is not rejecting a relationship with Mary. Yes, Mary would lose, with, along with all the other disciples, the physical nearness to Christ, but that is not what the church is meant to have yet. We are meant to have the word and the power of the Spirit. Notice what Jesus says instead, though. Don't cling to me. Go and tell. Not physical nearness, but mission. Mission. Don't cling to the feet of Jesus or hold his torso as though you can keep him with you forever. As opposed to doing that, as opposed to the fixation on the physical nearness of Christ, go and tell others. Go and announce. Go tell the disciples that I am alive. Tell them that I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. Look at what Jesus is doing even there. He's looking for the end of everything. 
This is why he created the world. So that the Son of God might share the Father with all of us. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. He is telling Mary, don't cling to me. But go tell the others that they're adopted. They're in. Because of what he had done. Because he had died and now is risen. You go tell them. Go tell them I'm alive. And go tell them that they're in. They're adopted. My father and your father. You belong to God. If you belong to him by faith, this is you. You are adopted. Sinclair Ferguson says of this passage, you may now speak to him as I speak to him. With the same right of access and the same sense of intimacy. With all the same assurance that he loves you. End quote. This is adoption. Not a stepchild. Not half in, half out. A full child of God adopted by Christ himself. You go announce this good news to them. Equal rights with Christ. All through the work of our older brother, Jesus. One last point. Mary goes in obedience, sowing the seeds of good news. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That he had said these things to her. You hear the message, the simple message of Mary to the disciples? I have seen the Lord. Not dead. He's living. He was crucified. We saw him. That was grotesque. We, we saw him die. We saw him pierce with a spear. We saw the blood and water flow out. We saw all the gruesome realities of his death. But I'm telling you, he's alive. I saw him. The testimony of Mary has resonated down through to this very day. This is a strategy that we can take with us as Christians into the world. Sometimes we wonder how the gospel works with our friends and relatives who don't know the Lord. How about Mary's simple, he's alive. He's not dead. The one that we saw die, he, he's no longer dead. I saw him. The resurrection of Christ proves in a definitive way that Jesus is none other than he claimed to be the very son of God and God himself. Will we hear this good news coming from Mary? Like Mary, will we take this message to our neighbors and to our world? The simple message that he's alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. For the beauty of it. Lord, for the glory of resurrection, that resurrection life has broken in to the darkness of this world, bringing light and life even to us. Lord, by your word and by your spirit, we see with hearts of faith. Shape us and grow us in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.